0: Welcome to the latest session of Randos Read, where four randos read Atlas Shrugged. This time we're discussing Part 1, Chapter 7, The Exploiters and the Exploited. We open with a bit of a side discussion of a screen adaptation of the book and the nature of rights before jumping in on the main discussion.
1: I didn't even bother to watch them. Nothing I saw or heard about them suggested that they would have any significant value to offer. I know. And I was. I was quite confident that they would only get worse over time. Um, they did. <laughs> the first mm-hmm.
0: one wasn't as bad as the subsequent ones. I yeah. heard that it was really about holding on to the rights. They had to do something mm-hmm. with them to keep the rights. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. It's the same reason Sony keeps making Spider-Man stuff.
2: Is that Ooh. why? They, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, oh, if, that, if they go a certain
1: amount of time without spitting out some kind of movie that makes use of the intellectual property, then it reverts to Marvel. Oh, (laughs) Um, Okay. So, yeah, I mean, there's multiple reasons why the book, you know, why I figured the movies would get worse over time. You know, one of them is just that, you know, as I think we've discussed in the actual, you know, online discussion, the book sort of starts off political and becomes ethical and then, you know, gets sort of epistemological and metaphysical by the end. So Mm -hmm. the ideas get more and more abstract as you go, which is a harder and harder thing and requires a better and better grasp of what the novel is doing in order to adapt into a screenplay. Um, That would bode not well. Which, Which suggests that, yeah, it's like, you know, it's easier to write something that looks like an okay adaptation of part one than it is to write something that looks like an OK adaptation of part three. Yeah. Um, Let's see how it goes. Yeah. And the other reason I expected they would get worse uh, over time is because something that looks like a minor misstep, you know, relatively early turns into, you know, a complete face plant by the time you get to the end. <laughs> you know, it's like the the magnitude of the error doesn't become apparent until, you know, you get to part three and realize, oh, shit, I forgot to set this thing up. And now I've painted myself into a corner.
0: Uh, I don't know how they have help in them. But yeah. the, the one thing they have that might be helpful is that it's series, not do it in one or three movies.
1: Yeah, well, they how could just long follow mini- the
0: source material very closely, maybe.
1: Hopefully. Well, how long a miniseries, right? I mean, you're talking I three, I mean, three movies is probably somewhere between four and a half to six hours, depending on, you know, how long the films are.
0: I was hoping that they would do like 30, 30 episodes.
1: Yeah. Miniseries are not that long these days. You know, you're thinking about like the winds of war and, you know, war oh. and remembrance that, you know, just went on for, you know, 100 plus hours. That's not what they do.
0: Uh, I guess I was I was hoping they could pull off what they did for um, uh, Fire and Ice. Oh, ah, didn't see that one, but like the the, Game of Thrones. The, remember, Game of Thrones. <clears throat> yes, that's uh, that that one.
1: Yeah. the The example I think of uh, when I think miniseries is actually uh, a sci-fi channel original miniseries called The Lost Room, which, which was uh, was actually quite good. Um, the Lost
0: Room. I'm always looking for something to go watch.
1: Yeah, I recommend that. But I mean, that well, you're you're probably talking, you know, five or six hours. So that's
0: oh yeah, like Adams, uh, John, John Adams. That, uh, yeah, that was excellent. Loved it.
1: Yeah.
0: Rome enjoyed that quite a bit. They ran out of money, apparently. Hmm.
1: Yeah. I'm just saying it's not all that obvious to me that, you know... Maybe it's about the same, six hours. A miniseries by modern standards might not actually be that much more time to play with than three movies.
0: Yeah, I was... For some reason, I was imagining 10 or 20 episodes. 30.
3: Yeah.
1: Mm.
0: 30 would be fantastic because 30 chapters, there you go. Yeah,
1: Yeah, you wish, but uh, I I don't see it happening. Three,
0: Three seasons of 10? I mean... And, That's asking too much, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Well, and as I said before, even if they had the budget to do something like that, I don't trust the people the Daily Wire is going to get to do the screenplay to actually capture what's truly important about the spine of the uh, the story. Yeah. Yeah. They will. Yeah. There is a standard. They're way. very
0: theistic. There.
1: Well, it's not even just the that I'm afraid they'd inject theism. They may well have enough integrity to A little bit of neocon splash in there, too. Well, the the thing is that there's a standard way in which the conservatives who like Atlas Shrugged, you know, they only allow themselves to understand the story to a certain depth. Yeah, you that's know? how
0: I met my first Christian objectivist. <laughs> and I was like, blah, 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 what? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It it was. I think what you're just describing there, where he uh, enjoyed and understood it on the political level, down just a little ways, but didn't get too close to that ethics or anything yeah. beyond.
1: Or, I mean, he, you know, they they like the the intransigent, principled character of the ethics. Um, yeah,
0: they'll go with that part. the uh, The integrity of it. Um, yeah,
1: but but they're you know they like a lot of the virtues. That she talks about, you know, honesty, integrity, justice, productiveness, um, you know, it's like sure, you know, that that stuff's all great. Um, you know, it starts getting a little awkward when you get to things like um, pride as a virtue, um, or you know, linking all of the virtues back to just being applied rationality.
0: Yeah, that that starts getting tough for them. Yeah. Um,
1: Um, you know, the the, complete
0: means their understanding of each one is a little, uh, is off. They they won't go that deeply into it.
1: The the complete, um, you know, rejection of, you know, altruism in, you know, every form and variant as a morality of literal death, you know, not too comfortable about that. Yeah. Um, (laughs) You know, the, um. You know the full frontal assault on self-sacrifice. Yeah, you know, they get weaselly about that.
0: Yeah, I think the one I'm close to, he just kind of glosses over that.
1: Yeah, la and, la la,
0: and then gets to the next part he likes.
1: Yep, and then you know, God help you if you start getting into you know the details of an epistemology of reason, the rejection of the arbitrary, um, you know, and the metaphysics.
0: Yeah, and a metaphysics where it's not dictated by anybody's whim, supernatural or not. Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. Yep. And it's like they're gone. Uh, One of the techniques I think that the conservatives use is, you know, that allows them to misunderstand Atlas the way they do is they insist on using sort of conventional forms of concepts rather than, um, you know, the Randian understanding of them. This is how they can, you know, misconstrue the virtues. You know, they look at, you know, honesty, integrity, um, you know, independence. Uh, You know, they say, yeah, those are great virtues, you know, but if you ask them, well, what are the, what do those virtues mean? You'll, you know. It's not
0: quite what we mean.
1: (laughs) Why, you know, why, why are they, why are they true? Why are they, they the correct virtues? And you'll get, an explanation that's much more conventional than Randian.
0: Yeah, but um, I've never gotten a much better answer than, well, that's what God told us to do. That's um, what makes it right. That's what makes it good. And yeah, sure, it seems to work out because, you know, he's super wise and I'm doing what he says. See that capital yeah, L lore? You
1: You need you need that consciousness <laughs> out there that decided for you. So you don't yeah. have to.
0: And it's even worse with rights. It's like, uh, rights are given to us by God. It's like, well, what does that mean exactly to be given to you by? I mean, we, we have a nice yeah. way to describe what these are and why we yeah, talk what, about
1: What exactly? Day. Yeah. I mean. Is it rights
0: stuff that's injected into you? Well, is it, you know, what is that?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, here's the question. What is the genus of a right?
0: I think that would be a gift from God of some kind. Yeah. Well.
1: But I mean that—that's an interesting them. question to ask them. It's like, what's yeah, the what genus kind of, of a right? This? What? What's the broader category a of which it is a member?
0: I—I I, I, to me, rights and permissions are opposites. But I think they think of them as permissions. Supernatural permissions, maybe. I don't well, know.
1: It's like I, I said. try it's
0: asking a, harder sometime because well, usually an, they just can't go there.
1: Yeah, well, I mean it's an interesting question. Um, you know, ask it of the. Um, you know the leftists. If, you know, on the rare occasions when they use right language, like you know, the right to an abortion.
0: Oh, they're absolutely. They they think that these are permissions granted by government and or society.
1: I don't even think no, they it's no, permissions. It's not. It's, it's not a permission. Um, really, it's an obligation it's, I'm sorry, imposed
2: sorry, on the rest of
0: society it's for your, your behalf. An entitlement granted by the government or and something or the society. like that. I
1: mean. I, I kind of feel like their their perception of a right is basically a, it is a goal. Let's say a, a right is a value that is sufficiently important that it deserves government support.
0: Yeah, that's pretty good. I, I was um, focused mainly on the source of it. It's like, yeah, it's not from our inherent nature. Uh, the facts of reality. It's, well, it's, it's a societal thing. It's a well, people you know, thing. It's, it's, it's man made.
1: Well, the definition that I'm going with I, I of the right you. is actually one that I think is shared by the political left and the conservatives. Um, where they differ is on the question of what makes a value important or what makes something a value at all. Um, you know, the conservative um, would say, for example, that their, their right to practice their religion is, you know, that is a value that is obviously very important and deserves government support and protection. Uh, and the reason it's so important is because God revealed it to them.
0: Yeah, so yeah. It, it comes down to somebody's whim, <clears throat> yeah. God's whim, society's whim, my whim
1: whatever, yeah, it's just something that's so important to me that the government should have my back on this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whereas, you know, just to loop this around, you know, from the objectivist perspective, I would argue that the uh, the genus of, you know, right is probably something like moral principle. Yeah, it is. Oh, or,
0: yeah. Um, a moral Probably something like a moral principle, principle, uh, sanctioning uh, our, our action.
1: Yeah. Well, in a I think Rand's definition is like you know, you know, a a moral principle sanctioning the individual's freedom of action in a social context. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. And
0: but, when you ask what's a moral principle, it's like well, it's a recognition of this kind of yeah. fundamental fact.
1: Yeah. That relates well, to and- us. Living yeah. well, and that entire approach just completely short circuits the whole rights are a gift from God thing because it's like, are moral principles a gift from God? I don't even know what that means. What is well, that? They, also mean? Think, they think what would that even mean?
0: So it's like, well, I don't even know how that works. This makes yeah. no sense.
1: It, it's like, you know, are all moral principles a gift from God, or is being a gift from God a distinguishing characteristic of a right?
0: I don't, think, I don't think they're thinking about it. I think they're repeating no. words they were given by their pastor or something.
1: Yeah, pretty much. But that's, um, you know, that's the fun so, of asking, asking yeah. the question. It's like, yeah, I'm going to go all Socrates on your ass and ask you if you actually <laughs> understand what, the, you know, the words that you're using you
0: know, when you talk. I haven't tried that for a couple of decades with my brother. It would probably go differently now. I should probably try that again.
1: Hmm. Yeah. You know, well, it, I think it might also be. He's a, a good egg you know interesting to try just because it's not obviously an attack or a criticism no it's just like what what do you think let's these things this. are let's just explore these yeah. concepts i want to know what they mean to you cuz you know when i try to understand a concept you know and you know make it you know something that i can use and and think about and and really really know what i mean you know i ask myself questions like what's the genus of this how does it relate to other concepts um you know, yeah, then what's the differentia? And yeah. I actually think the genus question is surprisingly important because a lot of people seem to jump past the genus and go straight to the differentia.
0: Which, that's less helpful. You need to know the sort of thing it is. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think this is one of the reasons why people misuse the, uh, the concept of fascism is because they equate fascism with its differentia while ignoring the genus.
0: What do you think their differentia is?
1: You know, one of them, I think, is racism.
0: Oh, like a a, a racist or nationalist. Uh,
1: yeah, kind of thing. Um, yeah, you
0: know? Flavor of socialism.
1: Mm. Yeah, well, you know, you can't say flavor of because that gets you into the whole genus territory. That's know, what I was it, going
0: for. I was going for genus. Yeah. And it's it like, yeah, if you
1: I mean, but, if, you know, lots of people get accused of being you know fascists today but as far as i can tell virtually none of them are totalitarian and whatever else you may say about fascism you know it is a species of totalitarianism all fascists are totalitarians yeah
0: that's that is the funny thing i was talking with someone the other day and they're like yeah yeah they, they say he's a he's a total fascist and i'm like that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Uh, it's like, in this case, it was the orange man. And it's like, mm-hmm. it, this is a guy who systematically tried to reduce regulation, tax them less, not get into wars, have free speech, and that kind of thing. It's like, I'm not seeing a lot of the
1: fascism in there. He's not
0: great. He's got problems. But
1: that's yeah, not but it. If, yeah, but it's like, he he is not, you know, there's a lot to it, dislike, but it, I don't think it's... It, oh, it's not was, correct to call him a fascist because he is not a totalitarian and I don't think yeah. anybody can adduce any evidence to indicate that he is.
0: No, and, and uh, yeah. the second half of it was like, and, and when I look at his foes, they are all of that. They're the ones with the speech codes. They're the ones regulating every freaking aspect of your life. They're the ones who will shut you down if you don't do the right yeah. group Although thing. Although even
1: there, I don't, Carl will probably disagree with me about this. I don't know how many of the left's fellow travelers are actually like self-conscious, you know, advocates of to- uh, totalitarianism. No, they I, don't
0: think about it that way. I think, I, I, think, nice.
1: I think they're moving it in that direction, it, but in the same sort of way that, you know, I do think that there are elements of Trumpism that I would characterize as fascistic in the sense that they tend towards fascism.
0: Well um, like uh I, I I have a vivid memory of the first debate when all of a sudden he talked about his uh his his angle on uh, takings yeah. And it's like uh yeah that's a that's a no-go
3: there
1: yeah, or even um just you know things like the cult of personality around him, the white knighting, the um the authoritarian appeals.
0: I've heard someone say he talks like a gangster.
1: Um oh, he is from New
0: York, so <laughs> he's from Queens, isn't he? I mean, yep, there's a vibe for Queens guys.
2: Well and, and the thing about like it is, is that yeah. uh, um, even even for being from a wealthy family he as far as New Yorkers are concerned, he was born on the wrong side of the track. Well yeah, Queens uh, it, uh,
0: okay. uh, Bongino, the commentator. He's also from Queens. He's like, oh yeah, people get freaked out by Trump, but I just see a guy from my hometown. That doesn't set me off at all. And you have to understand, he says, that there's um, the Manhattan downtown-y types. They're the ones who are smart, successful, and super duper rich. Guys in Queens are not that. And then there's the guys over there in uh, uh, another part of New York that's important, Brooklyn, something, uh, yeah. And those guys are tough as hell. They're not rich, but they're tough. The Queens guys are neither of those. They're kind of insecure and they have a different shtick about them. And he's like, he just exudes the insecure Queens guy who's neither super du- duper rich nor super duper tough uh, or something like that. He had this whole presentation. I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. I didn't know about the psychology of New Yorkers.
1: Yeah. I mean, I kind of see, you know, Obama, you know, so they sort they talk of the like same they exaggerate. the same way, you know, the way conservatives would call him a communist. And it's like, yeah, no. Yeah. yeah Marxist.
0: He's yeah. using definite Com- Marxist tactics.
1: Communistic. He uses some of those concepts, but for all that I do not like know, Barack Obama, luster. I do not believe that he was a totalitarian. <laughs>
3: mm. he,
0: I, I think he's just more of a power luster. He's
2: grabbing the yeah. power.
1: Yeah, I think
0: he's he was a, a, a power
2: luster and would have been perfectly happy with a totalitarian outcome so long as he was in charge of it.
1: Yeah, well, sure, but I, but I don't think that he was deliberately and expressly pushing for that as like his end goal. No, he um, doesn't care
0: about that. He just cares about his own personal power and money and stuff.
1: I I, anyway. I, I
0: think he he's uh Obama was a Marxist philosophically, but he was not a Marxist Leninist. Meaning, he didn't think uh, the way to get communism is to form a socialist totalitarian government and you know, bring about communism, like. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, I I used to characterize Obama as an anti-national socialist. You know, in, in other words, he's what happens when a fascist winds up um, leading a country that he doesn't like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's,
0: that's actually fitting. <laughs> you
1: know, because the... Um, you know, the historical examples of fascism were all, you know, ardent, you know, lovers and advocates of whatever nation they happened to be from. You know, Mussolini was fanatically so, pro-Italy, Hitler and, fanatically pro-German.
0: So an anti-American fascist. Interesting. <laughs> but it fits. Oh, absolutely. Huh. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so we have this book we could talk about.
1: We do. The cool
0: thing is that we've been talking about Atlas Shrugged for an awful lot of this so far, so I'm thinking I'm going to keep a bunch of that, but we don't have the neat intro.
1: Hmm. You might have to do some editing.
0: Yeah, so just imagine an intro happened sometime in the past with the four randos read, and uh, here at 30 minutes in, we can start talking about literally the book. Oh. No pun intended. <laughs> <Literally>, <laughs> yeah, I know. You guys are just going to go to town on that. <laughs> All right. So we're on Chapter 7, The exploiters and the Exploited. Um, in the four sections, we've got Section 1 where <sighs> – Bless you. In, while in Colorado overseeing work on the Rio Norte line, Dagny uh, meets with Ellis and Hank. In Section 2, Jim and Dagny uh, drive to a meeting at uh, the New York Business Council, and Dagny refuses to debate uh, Scudder. She ends up in a slum diner. Section three, Dr. Potter of the State Science Institute attempts to persuade, talking like a gangster, Reardon to withdraw his metal from the market. Hank tells him to pound sand. Section four, Dagny attempts to convince uh, Mr. Moen to continue producing switches made of Reardon metal despite the public outcry. Eddie tells Dagny about the State Science Institute's statement regarding Reardon metal. And that's the chapter. So now I'm going to rewind so we can...
1: That's not the chapter. What?
0: Uh, I do There's have a lot any... more that
1: happens beyond that.
0: Hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, oh, yeah, sorry, my bad. Next section, Dagny... Yeah, you're right. Uh, Diana broke chapters uh, in her own book. Uh, Dagny Taggart meets with Stadler, Dr. Robert Stadler, in an attempt to persuade him to repudiate the uh, State Science Institute's statement against metal, Then uh, Dagny finds Jim hiding from the public over the Fuhrer uh, around Reardon metal at the family estate. She tells him of her plan to complete the Yeah, she's like, here's how we're going to get this done. Mm -hmm. Dagny uh, next pleads with Francisco Danconia for uh, an investment in her new John Galt line. He refuses. And uh, then Hank... And Dagny discuss plans for the Jungle Line as well as its investors. And now that oh, section nine, final section. Reardon's mother visits his mills to ask him to give, more like demand, uh, to give his brother Philip a job. Hank refuses. He meets with uh, Mr. Ward about a steel order. Learns that the Equalization of Opportunity Bill has passed. Completes the deal with Ward and then despairs over the loss. <clears throat> now we've got a chapter. Yeah. Weird how that broke. Um, all right. So why rewinding back to the beginning? So we, we have a lot to cover. So (laughs)
3: this
0: is, this is a three, this is a, a long
1: chapter. Yeah. A lot happens.
0: Yeah. All right. So, um, in section, section one back, uh, uh, we've got Dagny meets with Ellis Wyatt. So, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. What kind of obstacles is she really facing? Yeah, let's see. What are the most interesting things to us?
1: Well, hey, you, you got. You oh, know, go well, you you've got Ben Neely, you know, marking out his position as a particular archetype.
2: Mystics of muscle.
1: Yes, it
0: was. Um, we have um, we have a couple of the. Uh, I, I speak of Marxism. Um, here we have his uh, muscular production view. You can make anything with muscle. That's what it takes.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting there because, you know, the, the kernel of truth, you know, that you um, have in, in that worldview is the fact that values are, um, you know, require a, an existential expression. You know, if it's just in your head, you know, that's a dream. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, you know, there's a sense in which, you know, you can make the argument that, you know, muscles, you know, physical action in the world, you know, is an absolutely necessary component of value creation
0: you know, to yeah. build
1: anything in the but world. He was um, going a little
0: beyond that, though.
1: Well. And that's the thing, you know, you, you identify the kernel of truth, but then you see where they're trying to go with it. Because it's one thing to say that value pursuit requires action in the world, um, you know, which, given the nature of our bodies, basically does involve using muscles. Um, and the idea that that's all it takes.
2: Yeah. I, think, I think it's that latter part that is defining... Neely is yeah. a, that's all it takes.
0: Yeah, it just it screened labor theory of value to me when yes. it came out of his mouth. Yeah, yeah. Although um, I mean, I think
1: it's it's a bit broader than that, but I think, but yes, you know, and you know, you'll want to contrast Neely with the um, the guy that Dagny uh, talks to in the diner later in the chapter.
0: Yeah. Um, again, taking us to an interesting spot, uh, another archetype in the same vein, mm. uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what he was saying, but I, I was thinking um, along the lines you're yeah. talking about.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you read his stuff, and to me, you know, that guy in the diner, and I'm sure we'll get there in due course. Um, he looked trained. <laughs> well, but the thing is that by conventional standards, he would be viewed as the anti-neely. Right? Uh, yes.
0: You know, but you know, not, Neely, still not acceptable.
1: Neely is the guy who says, you know, all it takes to to build anything, to create you know anything of value in the world is muscle. And the guy in the diner is um you know true things of true value are not created by muscle and material effort. They are Spiritual. They're guided by the mind, by morality, by virtue, and they have nothing whatsoever to do, you know, in effect, with muscle, with material action. Yeah, you know, that's all. You know, inner spring mattresses. That's that's got no uh, no value, significance whatsoever. Um, yeah, and you know, interestingly, the the two of them are. In a, in a way, in agreement, in that they both agree that, you know, creating uh, what they think of as material values is a fundamentally mindless activity. You know, it's just that Neely thinks you should do that, and the guy in the diner thinks, you know, there's no point. Yeah. Or conversely, Neely doesn't see anything beyond that, and the guy in the diner thinks he does.
0: Um, the, the way the guy in the diner articulated it, I thought he was some kind of, um, failed philosophy student somewhere. He, he, he was, he sounded trained. He was too complete and clear in his answer. I don't remember anything else about him though.
1: Well, Maybe, we'll maybe he
0: makes an appearance later. I don't know. Doubtful.
1: I mean, Rand likes to toss these little, uh, you know, side characters who exemplify certain kinds of philosophical or ideological archetypes, you know, into the story. Yeah.
0: All mind, all, all all body, no mind, all mind, no body. Yeah, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. The spiritual and the material. Yes.
0: All right. So, uh, here's a side question. Why did Hank lie to Dagny about flying back to New York?
2: He did not want to be in close quarters with her. Because
0: he just can't control himself and his base instincts. Okay?
1: Yeah. I mean, I uh, kind of um, interpreted it as him... Maintaining a rigid separation between his work life, private and George his... and
2: work George, yeah, but, but, so, but, yeah, yeah, between he did have his a
0: different manner, meeting her in real life after the party, it was like yeah, uh... just between
1: his his work life and his private life, right? I mean, Reardon, um, you know, seems to view his work life, you know, in effect as you know, you know, this is his man cave, right? it, it it's his escape into. You know, a world that makes sense to him. So um, notice the
0: contrast. Uh, when Philip wanted money from him, he was happy to write a check, a big check.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: But when they wanted him to give Philip a job in his plant, he was like F to the no.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely different answers.
1: Yeah, he does not. Um, he does not want to allow his work life to be contaminated by anything from outside and when dagny asked if he could give her a lift that in effect was friendship Hmm. and i think you know he he puts that on sort of that that's like a personal value you know rather than a a work or a productive value um you know it's it's like if I, I, I think if Dagny had had a work related project that she wanted to collaborate with him on the plane flight, you know, like, can if we they study were, these plans while we're yeah, flying? like if they yeah. were working together, you know, on plans or something like that, that he probably would have been like, hell yeah. Uh, that's interesting. Hmm,
0: okay. <laughs> Carl, what was that again, Uh, Work George
2: and and Uh, Work George and Private George, I think it's been a while since I've uh, I can't remember. But that's basically what it was was that his his worlds were colliding and and it was it was going to be the destruction of Private George. Yeah.
0: So yeah, there was a little
2: tinge of that too. Okay, you're killing Private George.
0: So, um, how about the scene where, uh, Dagny was asking Francisco for money? Ooh, One, it was wait. Becu- Oh yeah. Sorry. I'm hopping around because it's yeah, a big chapter and I I've gone to the course level questions. We're going to jump around if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but so she, she has, uh, when Jim was panicking, uh, okay, fine. Uh, sorry. It's probably bad. I'll back up. Hey, uh. He took her in the car to go and debate Scudder. He wasn't really forthright about what they were doing. And as soon as she figured it out, she was like, stop the car, I'm getting out. And he was freaking out. Um, he had a strange manner about him. Not his normal self. He was, he was altered. Was he super scared of the conditions in the world or the conditions inside her? Like pressure from the board, wondering what she's gonna do. Are you still committed to this? Was he trying to set her up for a fall or trying to stay out of trouble himself? What I, I couldn't quite tell exactly what, what was messing him up.
2: Anybody? Be well, I think, I think what you're dealing with here is that he had multiple motivations. He was playing CYA, of course, yeah, but more than that, that... I should
0: be able to tell what Rand's purpose is here, and I really couldn't.
2: Well, maybe what she's pointing out is that since he doesn't have a specific purpose, but conflicting purposes, this is what a person who has conflicting purposes this is how they act. It was really schizophrenic okay,
1: yeah, well, it's like he's he's being you know he he's i think fearful because um Taggart transcontinental is being put on the short end of the stick with regards to the looters right he he can he can sense that they're being set up you know you he can watch all of the pieces being you know put into position to um you know, attack. He's, he's not quite
0: the master of the universe he thought he was.
1: Well, to know. to attack Reardon Metal and to attack, uh, you know, Taggart Transcontinental and leave them hung out to dry, um, and he doesn't want to lose that kind of fight. So he wants Dagny to fight back against that with you know to to save him in effect from the other looters, without needing to admit that that's what's going on. Okay. It's plausible. Yeah. It's it's like he can see yeah. he, he can't I want, to,
0: I want you to save me, but uh but you're I don't really want, my I, I, type. I, Yeah. You
1: <laughs> know, I, I want you to prevent me from being, you know, looted without my having to admit that looting is what's going on.
3: hmm Yeah. I also,
1: you know, have to say that um uh I uh, I got a kick out of um you know, Jim Taggart's, um, you know, being, you know, so vitriolically offended by Dan Conway, not wanting to take a profit.
0: <laughs> yeah. Isn't he a businessman? Shouldn't he be t- after the money? I can't believe he wouldn't sell me his rails after we forced him out of the business. Yeah. In place. That was because that was the yeah. best deal. Well, like, it's, we wouldn't it's have just to tear that... it up. We just take it over. Yeah. Well,
1: it's that condemnation again. I mean, it, it's exactly like, um, you know, a writ small version of Francisco and the San Sebastian mines. You know how, Francisco how dare says, they not be
0: worth a lot. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, well, you know, Francisco argued that um, you know, Jim, you know, your moral system says it's evil to take a profit. I took a loss. You know. You know, what what what's your what's your problem? Where's my medal, man? And yeah. um you know, same thing here, you know, Taggart is, you know, Conway is in effect saying I don't want to uh to take a profit. And Taggart again is like how how dare you um, you know how dare well, you act in accordance with my moral principles.
0: Yeah, it is similar in that way, but I, I don't think Conway's working on the level of Francisco because I, I think well, he he I, submitted because he didn't have well, that, the chops to fight, uh, but then he's like, Fuck this.
1: Well, that's why I said writ small.
0: Yeah. Right.
1: Yes. It's the same. It's the same phenomenon, um, uh, just on a, a, a much smaller scale. Yeah. But, you know, again, you know, data point for, you know, wow, Jim Taggart really doesn't like it when other people, you know, act in accordance with his own stated moral principles. <laughs> that's that's kind of interesting. Um. He's also, interestingly, making the same argument here that the State Science Institute guy tries to make to Reardon later in the chapter. You know, aren't oh. you a businessman? Don't you want to make money? And yeah, well, he
0: went through the whole range of, it'd be, it's a nice business you got here. You know, <laughs> all, well, Everything from, hey, uh, do us a favor, through let us buy it, and all the way to, you're going to get squashed.
1: Well, and... I think Conway and Reardon, in effect, both, I think, refuse for the same reason at core. But Reardon is able to articulate it in a way that Conway, I think, could not, um, which is, you know, this is mine and I am not going to give it to you for, you know, for mere money.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, there is that fundamental similarity. It's not about the freaking money. Not, not for that.
1: Yeah, well, which raises it's the interest earning the money
0: uh, their yeah. way. <laughs> it's like yeah,
1: right. And I mean, from from an economic standpoint, you know, deviating away, you know, this is exploiting an ambiguity over what the concept of profit is understood to mean. Um, yeah, in the small,
0: think... it is profitable. But well, and, and
1: Francisco is going sacrifice. to go into this in his money speech later in the book, you know, when he talks mm-hmm. about you know, what it means to make money. Um, and
0: and that, that reminds me of something that Greg Salmieri uh, talked about in one of his excellent presentations, where uh, Rand first lays out all of this uh, real life action, illustrating something, and then she compresses it into an abstract presentation in a speech. And she doesn't do it the other way around with the abstractions first.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, And
0: that's... I think we're seeing the concretes right now of here are these people doing the things that are fundamentally similar like you're talking about. Then there's going to be that awesome speech <laughs> that really uh, clarifies it.
1: Yeah. It's like in in a free market, profit is a measure of the creation of value. But... Um, the money that is being offered here is not being offered in reward for the creation of value. Quite the opposite. Yeah. yeah. And therefore, in a fundamental sense, it is not profit, it's something else. Hmm. You know, in, in Conway's case, it's like, they can't admit that conway created something of value in the phoenix Durango because if they do they have to explain why they're prohibiting him from running you know yeah this rail so
0: then they turn around and say well you know it's but best we'll, if you just leave that in place and we take it over because
1: yep we'll we'll uh, we'll totally uh, yeah. yeah we'll totally buy it off you but that can't be a profit because they're not acknowledging the value that he created and you know, in the same way with Reardon, when the State Science Institute wants to buy the rights to Reardon metal, they're not wanting to buy it because they think it's good. they're wanting to buy it for some other reason that's not a hundred percent clear mm-hmm. you know to to Reardon, but you know that exchange looks a lot more like a bribe yeah. Yeah, you know, to me then And
0: and the the feel of that whole scene, I don't know if we can get into it, it feels so much like the bullshit that happens in the captured institutions around us, where something's being kind of smeared, its values being besmirched, there's somebody with a vested interest, like the Science Institute, who has a bunch of metallurgists who should have been producing something but haven't. Well, let us buy it from you and then we'll look like the producers of it. Well, or, or, well, they started with, keep it off the market. Maybe we can catch up. You're not going to do that. Well, let us buy it from you, because then we could adopt it as our own. Um, You're not going to let us do that? Well, we're going to destroy you and it. Um, it it completely feels like the kinds of operations that happen now. Maybe, maybe Rand was picking the same games out um, back then, too.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's the same... Yeah, timeless principle. Yeah, timeless and, principle. Yeah. And, <laughs> but, but and oh, and it, it is again interesting where it bottoms out. Uh, you know, the the ultimate sanction is we can destroy you. Yeah, but on the way
0: though, absolutely paralleling what we're what's happening around us right now, it's like, hey, who are you to say when we have. All of these experts trust the science. Don't do your own research. Look at all of these experts. 97% all say this. All of them say that. Who are you to say so on which? And it's like, uh, yeah, same exact games and with the same exact flaws. It, it was crazy to see this parallel at this time. It's like, wow. Um, I don't know what the example was back in her era, but... It is being paralleled right now. Freaky. Well,
2: I I, I I think what you're looking at is the distaste or even fear for that matter with which second handers view first handers. And I think you find that encapsulated in I have some spoilers here. Later on when Jim Taggart is melting down, not his final meltdown, but he's melting down. We'll make the bastard stand still. We'll finally make the bastard stand still. Too much change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of the, I mean, I guess to a certain degree, everybody is second hand. In this sense, we can't be experts on everything. But it's not second-handed to use experts properly. Yeah. But the difference between people who have to use folks who are not... uh, Okay, the the difference between people who have to use other people's knowledge in a first-handed manner versus that of a second-handed manner is that if you're doing it first-handed, you are more or less judging their judgment to the degree possible within your area, within your level of expertise. Mm-hmm. And, and I,
1: well, and I would also add to that that you are judging, you know, in a first-handed way, um, not only sort of the substantive content of what they are presenting inside and in. Integrating that into your own context, but also you have reasons why you think their expert judgment is good. Yeah,
3: I,
0: yeah. I'm it,
1: judging It's like why, you know, why this expert and not that one?
0: Yeah, I'm judging their output, their method, uh, how well they deal with uh, uh, surprises, how well they can communicate. All possibly, of things.
1: Their, you know, possibly their track record.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. That's like part of the output, is,
1: yeah, I mean, this is one of uh, you know Alex Epstein's points about you know climate intellectuals is you know you should be a about yeah. you know these people have been making predictions for you know over half a century now, now. fifty years you know
0: and and they've what, been abysmally wrong
1: yeah what what's their actual track record you know how yeah. how good of their prophecies you know and projections and, been and the
0: ones that that have only just appeared on the scene, they're they're not calling out the ones who've been abysmally wrong either. They're yeah. on board with them. So it's like, well that's a black mark on you too.
1: Well and you can look at it and say, you know, are the new, you know intellectuals doing something that's methodologically different from the, you know, the older ones who don't have a good track record? Turns out no. But I mean that's a, a fair question. Absolutely. Um, yeah.
0: So but yeah, that's you what know, the, a, a first handed use of an expert looks like. And yeah, the that's different than use of an expert
1: is, is more like, you know, you know, everybody, you know, says this guy knows what he's talking about.
0: You know, the best model seems like a consultant. You hire a consultant, you you select them, you monitor them, you use them. Uh, that's what I want is a consultant, not somebody to tell me uh, to uh, to rule over me but somebody to inform me and convince me
2: well and and, and that's kind of going back to your point earlier uh, greg in regard to uh rand's more or less prescient uh presentation of what we saw here in the last three or four years it is hilarious uh, I, i'm sorry it just the parallels were so damn strong well, and I, I think the reason they're so strong is that the motivation remains the same. Motivation is the control of other people. Because in a lot of ways, the second-hander's lifeline is control of other
0: people. It's a little sad that the same methods that worked a half a century ago are still in operation just as strong today.
1: Well, human psychology doesn't change because human nature doesn't change. Yeah. Um
0: I would like to think, though, that we can, um, like, we have better firmware, right? We, we, can, we can learn better concepts, better uh, well, methods, better do we... habits. Well,
1: because well, we try? You're, you're, do we your in firm... general? Yeah, I mean, your, you know, your firmware gets loaded by, you know, to a large extent, what you are taught by the culture that you grow up in. You know, yeah. The culture has gotten worse. Why would you expect people to have better firmware?
0: I hope springs eternal. Some of us slip through the cracks, like us. We we are not
1: of our general culture. We are very different.
2: No, that's true, and 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 in in the world, but not of the world. (laughs) Thank you, Kyle.
0: Okay, well played, sir. Well played. Actually, got the reference. (laughs)
2: Um. I think Rand actually made a similar allusion in one of her statements. Uh I, I can't quite put my finger on it, but I when I first time when I first read it I went, Oh, Matthew, okay. <laughs> but
1: uh Yeah. Well, and I mean there's a sense in which you know I, I think there, there's a kernel of validity in the idea which, you know, you know, in the religious context, my understanding of that is, you know, you have to live in, you know, the world, you know, until you die. But you don't have to give sanction, you know, to the, the evil parts of it, which of course is, you know, fundamentally the material nature of the world.
2: Right. And that right. yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's, a, uh, that's a correct reading, at least from my Christian upbringing. So, yeah, that's correct.
1: Yeah. And Rand, you know, makes a very similar point, you know, with sanction being the unifying element. You know, you live in a world that's populated by people, some of whom are, you know, good and moral. You know, they reason, they create value, they trade, they wish to live peacefully. You know, with others. And there are people who are evil, you know, who are moochers, who are looters, who are parasites. Yeah. And you want to live your life in cooperation and association with the former, you know, and the latter are, in effect, just cluttering up the world. And you do not give them sanction for the evil that they do.
2: Well, and that's, do you remember about a year ago when uh, apparently the, uh, the the media conglomerates realized that uh, it's not that they knew that they'd gone too far, it's that they'd gone too far, but not far enough. And they knew they weren't going to get away with it. And so there was this brief moment where they were asking for a COVID amnesty. Remember that? Mm. Mm. Oh, um,
1: yeah. Can't the, we all just move on from the COVID? Can't we all just bullshit? move on? It's
0: like no. Uh, you no can't forgive someone until they've said sorry for real. Yeah.
2: Until, my bad. And, and, until you've didn't acknowledged say my yet. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think I think the reason for that is that it's not that they didn't realize. It's not that they didn't realize that their plea for amnesty was invalid. I think they knew full well that it was bullshit. But I think it was one last attempt. And if you notice, a lot of what they tried to do was, which I found particularly unconvincing, is they tried to invoke Christian forgiveness. And I'm saying, you don't believe in Christian forgiveness. Don't lay that bullshit on me. you know but that's what that's that's how they were that's how they were framing it and it's interesting to see there are still you know unlike john campbell from the uk who started out as a huge proponent of of the mrna vaccines and then came to be one of their greatest detractors because he started looking at the numbers and 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 changed his tune as it were uh in in the face of the evidence you have any number of, and I hate to use this term because I don't think they are, medical professionals. I mean, frankly, medical professionals, they're a dead breed. The best I'm going to offer the vast majority of them is that they're now technicians.
1: Well, why don't, you, why, don't, why don't you call them medically credentialed? Hmm.
0: Well,
2: that's probably a good there idea. There you go. That is um, accurate. <clears throat> But they still want the prestige that comes with being deemed a professional, even though they don't do any of the things that distinguish them. distinguish When we talk about a professional, there's a particular uh, ethic of behavior that goes along with that, that they are not displaying. Here's the fun thing. Like Kyle and I, if he's
0: anything like me, we are not credentialed, but we are professional. Yes. Those guys are... Profession, uh, are, are credentialed, our our credentials not but not professional yeah,
1: yeah. well that's, that's why i think calling them calling them credentialed you know it's, is that's subtle. the
0: way to get it. that's the way to clarify
1: it's probably like the it. right the right way to do it because it's like you know, it it's exactly the kind of thing that alex epstein does in um, in climate you create you know, new value-laden terminology that requires your enemy to distinguish themselves from you by owning the bad part of a package deal.
0: Yeah. You guys right? get the credential. Cool. Where'd that come from? All your friends in the state. Fine.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's like, because the, the, the point is, you just, you call them the medically credentialed. And if they object and want to be called medically professional, you know, you say, well, what's the difference?
2: Then, <laughs> then they have to then they have to make explicit what they've been what they've been yeah. living on implicitly, at least in terms of their pseudo self esteem. Well, what's fun about this
0: is that yeah. Kyle has removed <laughs> credentials from the category of professional. It's like, oh well, you can you can specify that you're credential and professional, but I'm focusing on the professional part.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I mean by by you know teasing apart the package deal. I like it, right? Because what you have, or you have people, you know, they use professional as a package deal, combining, um, being having a certain credential with a certain sort of quality methodology of thought and action and yeah. It's like being this,
0: certified. Someone who was certified. Yeah, really, by whom?
1: And yeah, you know, and they want the prestige that comes from you know, the thought and the uh, the action and the standards. And they want to have that prestige and approval merely because they have the credential. And that's yeah. the purpose of the package deal is to combine the two together. And so, you know, what you want to do is tease them apart by calling them, you know, credentialed. credentialed. And, right. if, and if they object and say, you know, no, I'm a professional, you say, well, what's the difference? And then they have to explain that it's a matter of, you know, integrity and behavior, and you know, living up to these, these standards, and it's like, oh, well, well, you're talk not about doing those. that.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, when did you pick this uh, this terminological uh, distinction up, Kyle? What? Saying um, oh, you mean credential? Yeah, that
2: versus professional. That's. Um, I mean, okay. I like that parsing. I think it works I'm very totally well. I'm going to steal that. Yeah.
1: I um I made that up like two minutes ago. Oh, well, right. kudos very nice. to you, sir. Um, well, like I said, it's a it's a straightforward application of you know the principle that I learned from Alex.
2: Okay, as far as the value laden uh, ter- the newly value laden terminology,
0: Un- unpack the package deal, take out the part that they're they're smuggling in value from,
1: mm-hmm. and yeah. just and and frame it in a way that if they want to get the value part of the package deal, they. You know, or th- if they want to differentiate, you know, what they want from what you said, they have to explain the thing that they don't want to explain.
2: And that yeah. could
0: get rough if you uh, hold their feet to the fire. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, like in, in the, uh, the environmentalist context, it's the distinction between, you know, eco-human and environmentalist.
0: Yeah. Are you actually for human values? No, 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 I get it now. Yeah, you really don't like humans. Yeah, that doesn't seem cool. <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: but we just like great. you to own it overtly.
0: Yeah. Go ahead and say. it. it's just like you hate humans. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's like, it. you
1: know, if, if if you genuinely think humans are, are you know, uh, bad, then you know, should be scrubbed from the face of the earth. Own it. Be proud.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but the problem with that is that they, it's they want too their soon. cake.
0: Yeah, they want to have their cake and eat it too like, Oh, we can't be too extreme.
2: Yeah. Uh-huh. And the thing is, is do you, do you, I don't know if you remember, was it? Who was it that wrote uh, the toxicity of environmentalism?
1: Riesman. Who was it? Yeah. George
2: Riesman. Reason. Okay. Now, do you remember he, he basically, this is in the 80s, and he called out the deep greens for what they were? Well, look at how pervasive the deep greens anti-human ideology has become across the entire spectrum. I, we have, I mean, think about it. We, we have the World Economic Forum where people like Jane Goodall basically get up there and say, we want 95% of the world's population to die. It, it um, is actually
0: kind of cool to see that um, objectivists were very clear in what they were identifying decades and decades ago before yeah, it was yeah. so uh, blatant. And here we Although, are decades later and it's like, oh yeah, that's exactly what you were saying.
1: Right. Although I would note that um, Reisman correctly identified the anti-life standard, you know, of the deep yes. ecologists. Yes. What he what he did not do was the rhetorical judo of, you know, decomposing the package deal by presenting an alternative use. You know, and, and alternative terminology, you know, like ecohumanist, something, ah. like, you know, that you can use yeah. in discussion, you know, rather than just saying I'm anti-environmentalist.
0: Yeah, I think uh, Alex has uh, has really advanced the discussion. He's he's yeah. done something fundamental and important. Yeah,
1: because because yeah. if, he's if, if environment...
0: on these great shoulders, but he's he's definitely yeah. raising it.
1: Yeah, if environmentalism is a package deal you know, that combines, you know, some things that are legitimately good, like, yeah, I like clean air. I like clean water. You know, that is I, how they uh, get their
0: nose in the tent.
1: You know, I, I like, you know, I like going out for a hike, you know, in a you know wild area. You know, it's beautiful. You know? Um, you know, it's like those things are good. They're real human values. Um, you know, and they're mixed together with this anti-human, anti-life, you know, standard. Um, but if you just say, you know, environmentalism is built on this anti-life standard, I am anti-environmentalist. What most people hear you saying is pave the earth. Yeah. You I know.
0: hate nature.
1: I uh, hate nature. I, I want, you know, I, want, I want smog. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I want to yeah. poison
0: children. I hate nature. Yeah. 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 Because they, they don't you, have any way of hearing what you're saying. It, right. Alex is haven't... great at clarifying all yeah. of that.
1: Right. So Reisman correctly identified the bad part of the package deal, but he did not provide the necessary rhetorical tools for taking it apart.
0: And there's some real art to uh, taking somebody from the context of knowledge they have, as messed Mm -hmm. up as it is, to where they need to be or to at least shine a light on the path and guide them a little. And Alex has been all about that and it's brilliant.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, for all that I admire, a lot of the work that, that Reisman you know, has done, just from the style of his writing, I have always had the sense that he's got more than a streak of uh, psychoepistemological rationalism in him.
2: Um, well, isn't is that a failing possible. of a great many objectivists? Uh, isn't at, least that what... from that,
0: at least from that era, it, it was not
2: unusual. Yeah, well, not... Isn't, that, isn't that what Peacock said is to us? Mm -hmm. overwhelming sin had been. Yes. um, Which is why he wrote the book, keeping it real. You know, it hasn't, you got to keep it attached to the real world. Who? Peek Oh,
1: that's his Q and a collection.
0: Oh, I didn't see that. But yeah, um, he, he definitely recognized he struggled with it and he wanted to help others make it through too.
1: Yeah. Figure it out. Yeah. But I, you know, I think Reisman has that problem. And I think one of the ways that it, played out in this context is, you know, the notion that, you know, I have identified, you know, the wrong thing in this idea. What else do I have, have a, to do? Have a nice day. Yeah. Have a nice day. You know, my work is done. <laughs> it,
0: that, it did feel that way. And frankly, as the rationalist I was when I was reading him, uh, when I read that essay, I was like, yes, yeah. way to kick ass. And now I have the line and I even tried deploying it. And of course, you know exactly how well that worked. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And
0: uh, cut to Alex, who's just changing the culture. He's really making a difference.
2: Yeah, I've I've run into things coming from people who are not Alex, who unquestionably have been influenced by his arguments because um, the 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 superstructure is there.
0: When when you hear yeah. someone like Ramaswamy basically channeling Alex, you know that. <laughs> that mm. the circles that Alex is touching has informed him. There's no yeah. way he had that technology in his head without Alex.
1: Yeah. You it's, know. it's, it's interesting to watch, you know, in the same way that, you know, 20 years ago, you know, you could occasionally, you know, read you know, a book and say, yeah, even though they don't admit it, this person read Rand.
2: Yeah. yeah. Nancy Kress.
0: Yeah. Mm. It's like, yeah. yeah, for whatever reason, they can't directly credit, but it's like, yeah, I see.
1: Yep. <laughs> it's like, you know, I know where these ideas came from originally. Yeah. And, you know, nobody talks this way unless they have been exposed to Rand directly yeah. or indirectly. Yeah.
0: Only, yeah. Only people in, in, in this area, in this uh, yeah. part of the rhetorical landscape or whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This, and neighborhood. this
1: And in the same sort of way now, you know, I'm actually, yeah, it's like, you know, you'll listen to something somebody says and it's like, yeah, this person was influenced by Alex Epstein directly or indirectly. But, you know, I know where these ideas were formulated and first publicly put forward and, you know, nobody else talked that way.
3: Yeah.
0: And there's um, there's a handful of eco- eco-humanists and they've been influencing each other. But I think uh, like Schellenberger and um, uh, the, uh, the economist one, uh, Bjorn Lomborg Lomborg. Yes. Both of them. Fantastic. But, um, Epstein is, uh, is more fundamental and I, I do think he's affected them because they all read each other's books and review them, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and then of course he has his own outreach through now he's hitting the politicians and their groups and he's got the, uh, the talking points website. Yeah, it's great.
1: I mean, he's clearly, you know, you know, he's got staffers who are writing, you know, it's like that RNC energy resolution was. Oh, my know, God.
0: That was almost.
1: That was like 90 percent Alex. Yeah. yeah. They,
0: they didn't contradict anything. They copied much of. It's like it, this is pure Alex. Um, so, yeah, actually, I was curious whether he even helped them edit it, but he didn't need to. Because his talking points, he probably has a presentation or two that they could just take those and edit them into it. And if he's like, yeah, go, go nuts, they would. Uh, if they had a talented uh, staffer.
1: Yeah. Well, and in some ways that I think is you know, a little bit more significant because you know, these things don't actually get written by the elected politicians. They get elected by the staffers that they uh, they hire.
2: Yeah, really. yes. written
1: written by, by those people. So there's and, a
0: staffer who likes Alex.
1: Yeah, probably more than one. Which is
0: <laughs> wonderful. I don't even know what's whose staff that came from, I can't remember. But it was like, oh, okay, well, there's some inroads there.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and what that says to me is that you know, you've got staffers in the you know Republican Party now who are you know aware of Alex. Who like his, you know, work and his arguments? Consider him credible
0: because they just want to win. They,
1: yeah, they don't. And,
0: they don't give a rip. They just want to win, <laughs> and uh, and they will take his winning stuff. Yeah. I'm assuming well, that they're they're standard. Yeah, yeah. politician my, my, types. Yeah, Maybe My more point ideological. Being
1: that you know, if I'm correct, that in effect there are people like that. Yeah. You know. Then you know, they're going to continue acting like the kind of people that they are.:
0: Which I welcome. Like, mm-hmm. They don't need to be perfect. just
3: yeah.
1: This is a
0: dramatic difference from two decades ago. Oh my God. So I'll take it. All right, so,
1: so we had a book.:
0: Yeah, there's this whole book thing. Um, d- did you guys pick out why the State Science Institute wants reared metal off the market?
2: Well, yeah because the they, rights they they can't admit that okay so let's this let's go back to
0: rube. oh <laughs> yeah
2: well it, it, it it's basically a, a kind of a refutation of eisenhower's research uh, uh university complex if you remember in his uh, in in his uh, farewell address where he gave us most famously the warning against the uh, uh, the industrial uh, the military industrial complex, but he also had in there what would happen when you had the academics in charge of everything. Well, here and and so and which is you know he was correct about that, but what what's going on here is that RAND through RAND through Reagan's invention, excuse me, Reardon's invention is subverting that narrative. Hmm? You have one you haven't see one of the things that Eisenhower said was that you're going to have such such numbers on one side that the individual inventor tinkering his lab will not be able to compete well Reardon was able to compete and and if you think about it there's a there's a more like, subtle yeah, epistemological the of point academics
0: here with a with a with a mountain mm-hmm. of money
2: yeah he he did it on his own yeah mm-hmm. but but see there's there's another thing here and we've talked about this in another context before uh, you can't have collectivism at any level without eventually epistemologically dumbing down the people indulging in it and that's what we see at at work here is that you've got the collective state science institute and 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 you could certainly draw analogies from that presentation to the various uh government to private sector complexes that we have today and and what do we get out of these places well when they're not when they're not um
0: when they're not racist pieces of
2: um (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, well and, and some of the stuff they're doing. I mean it's a mixed system. I mean, don't get me wrong. Some of the things that Pharma does are life-saving. No question oh, sorry, about different it. Different category.
0: Yeah. Um yeah, but it's still a captured institution. they yes. you know,
1: well, and I I think there there's a couple of different <clears throat> issues on the pragmatic side there. You know, there is a general epistemological dumbing down because um you know, collectivist institutions don't like to hire brilliant individual minds, um, you know, because they're they're ideologically opposed to that. And frankly, the brilliant individual minds wouldn't want to go and work in that environment. Right. Um, you know, generally. Um, there is also the economic fact that precisely because something like the State Science Institute has decoupled... Um, science from the dollar, or more broadly, science from the market, Mm -hmm. it's going to suffer the same kind of productive problems with the allocation of productive resources that happen to any, you know, entity in, you know, when it is severed from the market, right? It's, it's the Miesian economic calculation problem. Yeah. How exactly, is the State Science Institute, which could be researching anything. How are they supposed to decide which areas of research are going to create the greatest value?
0: Yeah, they don't. They just or go with the what the politicians tell them to. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Reardon, because he's producing a product for sale on the open market, to the extent that that market is free, the profit that he makes from it is his measure. That he has actually created value and the profit that he can rationally expect to make from it on the basis of prior market transactions is his rational foundation for saying, you know, if I make an alloy that is stronger than steel and lighter than steel and cheaper than steel, then I will be able to sell it to the people in the marketplace who are currently buying steel. You know, and I know how much they'll be willing to pay me for it. And therefore, I know that this is a valuable investment in time and resources for me to make. The State Science Institute can't do any of that. Mm -hmm. And as a result, their productive resources will always be fundamentally misallocated.
2: Yep yeah yep.
1: they might get something right every now and then yeah, it's, by it's accident. Like, yeah, they can be brilliant.
0: Money. they can do science really well. They have lots of funding, lots of brain power, but they don't have
1: but the amount of yeah the amount of waste and misdirection will be colossal,
0: yeah, lots of malinvestment, I guess you could say in the in the broad sense,
1: yeah, now, all that said, I think there's another aspect to what's going on in the book other than the purely practical. Um, explanation that Stadler gives uh, when you talk to him, because Stadler's talking about the pragmatics by and large. It's, you know, we have this state science institute, which is in his mind, you know, this valuable institution, the last bastion of science, you know, in the world. And we can't allow it to be you know, overshadowed by, you know, this industrialist. You know, it's like he makes us look bad, we'll lose our funding. It'll be a disaster.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. But I think there's also a moral philosophical element to what's going on there, which is that the, uh, the pressure that's being brought onto Reardon to, in effect, withdraw Reardon metal Uh, from the market after the SSI has, you know, made its pronouncement. They want Reardon to act in a way that gives them intellectual credibility. They want Reardon to treat them as though they are genuine scientists looking at the facts of reality and drawing...
0: Treat us as the authorities we are. Treat us as
1: intellectual authorities. And he's Um, like, no,
0: I got my own judgment. I'm okay.
1: Yeah. And that, I think, is the deeper philosophical conflict, is that, you know, the SSI wants and needs philosophically to be treated as intellectual authorities. And Reardon doesn't give them that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So and, and I, I agree it's um it did seem like it was both of those we We need to be the pinnacle, the respected, treated that way, and we can't have this upstart inventing something amazing that we've had more brains and more more funding and haven't done. so you need to delay, give us time, you need to give it to us, you we will
2: destroy it, whatever. Mm. something. Well, if you think about it, that's the yeah. that's the that's the analogous position to the modern position today of follow the science, not 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 look at the science and determine for yourself the truth or falsity thereof, <laughs> but follow the science in an authoritarian. Yeah. way. And in, in
0: Alex's way of saying it's like that, there there are the uh, uh, I can't remember the term for the the ones who popularize it, um, the, the synthesizers. And the promulgators, they—you, uh, mm-hmm. these are the people you should just obey. Is the is the current yeah. trend?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, another you know, terminological tweak that occurred to me. Um, when somebody says follow the science, try correcting them to follow the scientists.
3: Yeah,
0: and it—it it turns out the people they're listening to are not the scientists. It's the popularizers.
1: Well, yep. my goal in recommending that as a tweak is not to draw the distinction between the popularizer and the actual scientist. It is to draw a distinction between science as a methodology and the specific people that have been given a credentialed imprimatur.
0: Oh, so you're saying the uh, say the, the, public, uh, the public exponents. Is, you're, you're saying, oh... So you're just uh, you're embracing and amplifying and saying, oh, yes, follow the scientists. Here's our cult of personality. Let's go follow that person.
1: Yeah. hmm Yeah.
0: I'm and that not, should make them uncomfortable.
1: I'm not 100% happy with that. But again, this feels like one of those package deals where they're combining, you know, Oh it a absolutely of, is. You know, An intellectual authority that should come from following a particular methodology with being credentialed and handing down ex cathedra pronouncements that are not allowed to be questioned.
0: Yeah. Your instinct seems right. I I'm not sure the the best way to to slice it, but yes.
1: Yeah, but there there's a package deal there that needs to be sliced apart.
3: Hmm.
0: Okay. I'll leave that as homework for my subconscious. Mm. Uh, actually, gonna, i gotta write this down. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Back to the, uh, the fun questions. Book, um, book. Yeah. That whole book thing. Um, The, the scene with, with Dagny asking Francisco for funding. One, I was a little surprised that, uh, Rand had her go to him for funding. And then there's the, um, there's that whole suspension of disbelief thing that you have to do where it's like, I can't tell you and don't ask. And then they just move on. <laughs> it's like, what, what the hell's going on here? Uh, a, a normal person I think would be like, what, what? Well, yeah, it, it was a little unreal that she would go to him in the first place, not respecting him, not wanting to deal with him. And it was very unreal the way he responded. But uh, well, in the future, I kind of I get it. It's cool, I mean, I, it's I
1: I think part of what's actually going on there, perhaps, although it's not expressly stated, is I think it's Dagny putting Francisco to a test. Oh, OK. Hmm. Because
0: I, I took it as just sheer desperation on her part. She needs the damn funds.
1: She does.
0: But Oddly, at least she didn't time, hit up Hank.
1: <laughs> she's okay. um. Yeah the the hitting uh, the hitting of Hank will happen later. Yeah. Um, the right. um. Yeah, we know that Dagny is of deeply mixed feelings about Francisco. She doesn't understand him because she sees in him a mixture of sort of two antithetic principles. You know, the uh, the depraved playboy who, you know, screws around on a lark and, you know, destroys millions of dollars of capital in unconsidered, you know, ventures, you know. And yet when she talks to him personally, you know, he still seems to be, you know, focused. He's clear, he's articulate, he's rational. You know, he, he's the same man that she remembers from her youth and she can't figure out how to square that circle and part of her agenda there um, in that meeting I think is she's putting him to a test to try to figure out which of those two principles is actually dominant and which one of them is a front Mm mm-hmm You know, because she she can't, she can't square them together. So she figures one of them's got to be the real Francisco and the other one is, you know, is the mask. Yeah. And he keeps
0: telling her she's really pissed off. And he's like making it pretty clear he's aware of her struggle and gives her all the hints.
1: Right. But But he's, you know, and he keeps pushing her to not, you know, not make it explicit because he knows that um, Oh, she can't quite, she can't get there yet. She, that she, she, He knows that if, you know, that he must refuse and that she will interpret that as you know, indicating, you know, that the, you know, destructive playboy, you know, the, the side of him that has rejected all the things he stood for in his youth that that side of him is the real him. Hmm. And that, I think, is part of why he he you know, dodges and weaves and pushes so hard for her to not make the issue explicit and why it rips him up so bad. You know, when when she you know, makes, you know, her appeal, you know, if, if any of the things, you know, that, that mattered you know, to you and to me. You know, when we were younger, if they still mean anything to you at all, you know, do this, right? I mean, she she turns the screw all the way. Oh yeah,
0: she does. she's hitting him
1: hard. And yeah. you know, you know, and she damn near breaks him.
0: And a lot of it is his 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 continued love for her. Mm-hmm. And it's rough. Yeah. He should have just refused the meeting. (laughs) That would have been a better move.
1: Yeah, but... (laughs) But that's not as
0: good for the novel.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and also, from Francisco's perspective, he's also keeping a very close eye on her to see whether or not she has learned from her experiences with the looters enough to be ready to go on strike.
0: And she's not.
1: Spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not ready. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yep. and, and she is not uh,
0: uh, she she and Hank even I think in this chapter say explicitly we can save them we can make this happen we can we, save the world
1: we, we can do this You know.
0: yeah I don't remember quite where or when they said it but it was along those lines yeah the world's dying and we can save them okay uh, Carl I, I muted you because of the clattering ice but uh Feel free to unmute. Uh, hopefully you have not been monologuing into a, a muted mic. That'd be bad.
2: Oh, I didn't realize that the noise was coming through. No. I should have muted myself.
0: No, no, no worries. That's why I'm here as the producer of the show. Okay.
2: Okay. Yeah. Um, so so we'll here's a question. Yeah. Um,
1: you know, in the diner,
2: Oh no no! I just uh, I I know that Kyle dropped out for about fifteen seconds from my perspective. I didn't know if you'd lost him as no, well. No, he's yeah.
0: been he's
2: been talking steadily. I heard him. Are you here okay? Well, then it was just my connection. Okay,
1: are you hearing me now?
2: But I uh, said okay. no. I'm
0: thinking. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Okay, yeah. Carl, if you can hear me, he's still here. <laughs> he's yeah. been almost. Uh, he's been giving a speech. The whole time. Oh,
2: Okay. Well, um, I can hear you, but I have not heard Kyle here for about two this minutes. This is really oh, crazy. Point. Okay.
3: Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, because I keep saying things, but. Uh... Yeah.
0: If you speak and nobody hears you, did you really speak? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I, I heard
1: me. That's enough.
0: Yeah. Uh, I heard you the whole time, too. Um, so yeah. you might want I to was... reset okay. your connection, Carl,
2: just in case, because I don't know. Well, you might have to, uh, I'm going to turn the mic off and then back on again and see if that makes a yeah, difference. Probably not. Might need to reconnect. But, okay. Uh,
0: Kyle, uh, Kyle, you had a question?
1: Oh, I was just um, wanting to call out the uh, the kid in the diner who, um, you know, says of Dagny that she's not afraid.
3: Hmm.
1: I, I just thought that was an interesting exchange.
3: Yeah.
1: You know, yeah. You know, he said to her suddenly, without explanation, a flat statement in a brusque, lifeless voice that had a note of wonder. You're not afraid. You're not hmm. afraid. No. And she I'm was. And
0: she was probably like, "Blink. Do I need to be?"
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> that wasn't
0: what, it, what she said.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting question. You know, what isn't she afraid of that he's picking up on? Uh, because. Is he He just just having the general
0: anxiety of the era? I I think he he might be more amazed that she's not like the other adults.
1: Yeah, but that raises the question, what are all of the other adults afraid of? Mm -hmm.
0: Each other. Sorry, I'm dealing with Carl in the background here. Mm. Okay, let's get him upgraded. Thanks, X. (laughs) So, yeah, um, agreed. Oh, and he left again. He's having issues.
1: Zoom tight. Got to love this platform. Uh, sound
0: quality is way better. We could try to rumble. But then we'd have to have our faces on camera. I, I'm, I have more of a face for radio. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, man. yeah. that Dagny Francisco scene is just brutal. Because I, I keep uh, thinking about... Rough about what this looks like from his perspective, you know, what he knows.
0: He, and, it had to be intolerable for him. He's missed her, loves her, she despises him, and wants something well, from him, and he can't give it.
1: Yeah, and I mean, she and she is desperate. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the fact that she would go as far as she went to try and get, you know, him to aid her, you know, and he can't, knowing what it's going to lead to her concluding about him. It's like, yeah, nicely done. Mm -hmm. Carl,
2: are you back? I am back and I can hear Kyle. I'm not sure. I I had to do it three times before I could hear Kyle coming back in. So I don't know what the heck was going on with that. Should have gotten an apple.
1: That's pretty weird. (laughs) because. It's like if none of you could hear me, I that would make sense to me. It's like, okay, my microphone's effed up. But or, if, yeah. if Greg and Edward can hear me and Carl can't, that's like
0: There's some kind of split in their network. Yeah, I think last time I monologued for a while and you guys were gone. So
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what did I miss while I was gone?
1: Uh <laughs> just one nothing useful. Yeah. Okay.
0: So let's see. Uh, how about uh, uh, Francisco's reaction when Dagny uh, renamed it to the John Galt line?
1: Yeah. <laughs> he he like, will.
0: He Let him like, like, come and claim it. He will.
3: Yeah,
0: yeah I, I I love that. It's like yeah. the, the fun little turns of phrase that it's like, unless you've read the book before, you don't get how funny it is. And so, yeah, he will.
1: <laughs> uh yeah. Well, and from Francisco's perspective, this is just something that comes out of nowhere.
0: Yeah, it, it, he was concerned at first. He's like, "Wait, why? What, why are you doing that?"
1: Hmm. Yeah. It's like, what have you heard? Yeah, probably yeah, real relief
0: when he realizes, like, okay, you're just reacting to you know hating that slogan or whatever. Okay. Okay. Um. So let's see. What else do we have here? Um. We, we talked about why, you know, uh, Jim wanting her to debate Scudder. And that was just messed up. Let's see. Oh, um, so Dagny goes to see Dr. Stadler, the head of the State Science Institute, which is condemned or smeared uh, Reardon Metal.
3: Mm-hmm. But
0: it, it was a different branch. Uh, it was kind of like the, uh, we've got a mind-body split here with the... Uh, pure science guy versus the, well, you know, he keeps it running. He's kind of a second rate yeah. guy, but he's really good at keeping us funded and running. And, you know, that's great. No, I haven't read that article that condemns yeah. your metal.
1: Stadler, Stadler comes across as kind of an interesting character here. You know, he in some ways reminds me of Francisco in the sense that, you know, he appears to be a mixture, you know, of, you know, a, you know good and bad. Hmm. Um. But it's a different kind of mixture, and the bad seems worse.
0: It it seems like the bad is a, a growing cancer that is taking him over. That's not what I get out of Francisco. Well, maybe from the outside, others would see it that way. Though they would see it looking like he was just destroyed by the Playboy thing. Hmm.
1: Yeah. But you know, it's like. Unlike, you know, a lot of the the bad, you know, characters, you know, in the the story, you know, Stadler, you know, there's clearly something, you know, off base with him. I mean, there's a kind of moral cowardice here, you know, in him. But there's also something that seems genuinely admirable.
0: Yeah, he, he is undeniably brilliant. He wanted to have this science institute to help the human race, the pitiful humans that aren't so smart. (laughs) It's like, okay, all right. Mm -hmm. Um, He appreciates talent like Dagny, but uh, man, he made a deal with a bad devil and he's not fixing it. And even when uh, the part that is not morally praiseworthy is her basically rubbing his nose in what's going on. And he's, oblivious not not he refuses to see it he's blinking
2: dealerer yes. yes no I know. I, I yeah I, I think what you're seeing is someone in the in the early stages of total denial yeah
0: maybe uh, well and yeah it's like he uh, maybe this is because of the principle you were talking about earlier Kyle where he uh, he sees the, the fundamental mission as good of the of the Institute. He can't let the Institute be destroyed by this kind of nonsense. So he sticks up for the Institute and stops her. Because, well, we need to save humanity. So he, he mm-hmm. his impulse is benevolent.
1: I wouldn't say it's benevolent exactly, because I don't really think he's being even honest with himself. You don't think he's trying to solve
0: a, humanity's fundamental problems and be a good scientist?
1: A lot of the um, the arguments that he presents have the stench of rationalization about them.
3: Hmm.
1: You know, to me, I mean, we'll, we'll be seeing much more of Stadler over the course of the novel, and I think it's worth, oh, okay, yeah, you know, going to be worth keeping an eye on him to see whether or not you know his motivations get recast okay you know in the, in the light it, of later events
0: it has been so many decades since i read it i don't remember any of that so so I, I i'm barely i'm basically meeting the guy for the first time and it's like okay
2: um let's see well there's yeah there's a lot we don't know about him we uh, at this point all we know about him is that He's the head of the State Science Institute and how that came about.
1: Yeah. Mm. In some ways, you know, the guy reminds me a little bit of Gail Winand from The Fountainhead.
0: Yeah. He has a notion in mind. He, he's, he seems to be trying for a noble end. Uh, mm. And that well, one fateful choice to set it up, to sponsor it. So or I proposing. mean, not even
1: that... Um, you know, it's um. You know, like like Stadler. You know, when Winand was young, you know, he you know, in effect, looked out at people, and concluded that people. You know, could not be reached by reason.
2: People are no damn good.
1: People are no damn good.
2: Yeah, but they always need like, land. Yeah, they're,
0: yeah, and and uh, here he's like, yeah, they they're benighted. Um, they can't they can't understand right. what we're trying to show it's, them. It's
1: the same. It's the same evaluation of other people, um, but they come to different conclusions about how to deal with it. Um, You know, Winand decides. You know, basically, I'm not going to reason with them. I will. You know, I'll cater to them and thus gain power over them. Mm -hmm. And then I. I can use that power to protect myself. And, you know, Stadler, you know, basically, you know, got the government to, um, you know, create a haven for him that he could flee into.
0: Yeah. Now he's trapped in. Um...
1: Mm -hmm. And now he's trapped in it and uh, it's become a lever because anything that might destroy his haven is now something that he, you know, he has mm. to oppose.
3: Mm-hmm. Hmm.
0: OK, so uh, I had another thread to pull on, but I can't remember it. Fine. Uh, the scene where uh, Dagny agrees to leave Taggart Transcontinental, maybe to never return. So why is she eager to do that? And why is Jim eager to let that happen? Hell, hell he's, he, he actually proposed. And you may not come back if you fail.
2: And Well, I, I think to a certain extent, even though Jim knows that he can't run the railroad, he really, really resents the fact that his competent sister is, and so he's willing to expend her in one final cover your cover my ass uh, uh, strategy. And, he, and and what we're seeing here is glimmers of because we know James can't run the can't run the store, so what we're seeing here is glimmers of his epistemology. That is implicitly anti-life.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth noting that, you know, Jim never overtly stops Dagny from anything. Because that would require him to take a stand. Yeah. And he will not do that.
0: And and there also might be some part of himself... That, that does know that she's what's keeping them rolling. And you can't interfere with that. Yeah. You think?
1: Or is, it, mean, or is I, it
0: really just the, no, I'm not going to take a stand?
1: <laughs> I, I, I really think it's much more that, you know, if if Jim, you know, Dagny comes in and explicitly gives Jim an ultimatum. It's like, this is what I'm going to do. If Jim rejects that ultimatum he has to present an alternative he knows he's in a situation where the business must take action this is not something you know that can be concealed um not something that can just be absorbed this is a potential death blow you know coming at taggart transcontinental
0: maybe it's a hail mary
1: um well and for You know, when Dagny comes and says, you know, I can save the company. You know, if Jim tells her no, you know, then he is either um, putting himself in a position where he has to make a decision in order to save the company, or he has to admit to himself that he doesn't actually care whether the company lives or dies. Hmm. And that last is entirely too close to admitting to himself that he doesn't care whether he lives or dies. And he's not ready for that yet.
3: No. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no.
1: Yeah. It's like, this isn't running around drinking beer with your buddies dead. This is little bits being swept up by a janitor dead.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's,
1: it's
0: Thanos dead.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Um you just quoted Buffy the Vampire Slayer, didn't you? Yes, I did. Oh. <laughs> I I never really watched that, so I didn't get the reference. Sorry. <laughs> so
0: it took me guy? a while. I
2: said that sounds really familiar. Why <laughs> does that sound so familiar? <laughs> is,
0: is there a bad guy who's basically a uh, a flamethrower thrower that uh, would crispify?
1: Not exactly. Components? Okay. Uh, the episode was called "The Zeppo."
2: Yes, Um, uh, the guy that never gets any respect saves the day and still doesn't get any respect.
1: respect. (laughs) Yes,
2: but at that point he doesn't care because he knows he saved the day. (laughs) That's funny.
1: But this is sort of you know it's him you know facing off against um a um a guy who's I forget you know some kind of Walking Dead. Um, who's planted a bomb in the basement of the school. Um, And the the positioning is that, you know, the bad guy has access to the bomb, but the hero is between the the bad guy and the door. So the good guy can't get to the bomb, but the bad guy can't leave. Hmm. And the bomb is ticking down. And so the hero has to convince the villain, you know, to, uh, to switch the bomb off. <laughs> okay. And, uh, you know, the villain is like, you know, you know, you know, if, if we stay here, you know, you, you're going to die.
2: And yeah. So basically right. what, 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 goes on is, is he goes, well, I'm already dead. And then okay. we have the quote that Kyle, uh... Yeah, and then it's and okay. then he goes. Well, you'll die too. And he says, "Yeah, but I like the quiet." <laughs> so wait. And so the first, uh, the first before that, it
0: was like, "Yeah, a Marty did." Is like, "Yeah, but you're not." Uh, uh, yeah, sweep up into yeah. a.
1: Yeah, we're yeah we're we're not talking about yeah you know, running around drinking beer with your buddies dead. This is little bits being swept up by a janitor dead. And I don't think you're ready for that yet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a pretty good line. <laughs>
1: Josh Whedon could write, yeah. Now and Josh Whedon,
0: okay, yes, that would explain mm. that.
1: I don't remember if Whedon actually wrote that script, but yeah. Well,
2: uh, he probably mm. had there, a there hand in good, there.
1: There were some good writers on that show, yeah, from yeah. time to time.
2: And some of them <laughs> uh, found their way to uh, Firefly.
0: Oh, loved that show. Died too early a death
2: because shenanigans.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay, so um, since we're we're spinning down here, let's do one last little bit and call it good. How right. does Hank? How does Hank cope with the passage of the Equalization of Opportunity Bill?
2: Yeah. Uh, uh, he, he ends. He ends up. He uh, ends up comforting his secretary, who's taking it harder than he is.
0: Yeah, that's all I remember is is her losing it and him being like, "Yeah, fuck up," kind
2: of thing. Hmm. But then he, is he but repressing then he goes well he goes home and that's when it well not at home. Um there's some apartment the and, yeah yeah everybody else is gone and then it hits him. Mm. And then he remembers if I remember correctly, and I didn't I get a chance to do my homework this, this time around. I remember correctly, he he remembers back to when he was working in the mines and was convinced that he couldn't take another step, but he just took a deep breath and took another step, and that's where he where he is at the at the end of the day once the Equalization of Opportunity Act is passed. Hmm. So he draws on reserves of his own history to deal with the. Uh, to deal with the uh, the blow.
3: Mm.
1: Yeah, I want to note an interesting connection here. Um, going back to Stadler, uh, Stadler says uh, to Dagny, "You know, you are an unusual, brilliant child who has not seen enough of life to grasp the full measure of human stupidity. I've fought it all my life. I'm very tired." And then. You get to you know the bit with Reardon, you know at the end after the passage of the Equalization of Opportunity uh, bill, and um, you know he has, um, you know he felt a desolate loneliness of a kind he had never known before. He thought that Gwen Ives and Mister Ward could look to him for hope, for relief, for renewal of courage. To whom could he look for it? He too needed it for once. He wished he had a friend who could be permitted to see him suffer. Without pretense or protection, on whom he could lean for a moment, just to say, "I'm very tired," and find a moment's rest. Yes, he,
2: and then what? 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 What friend does it? What friend pops up in his head, and what? What? Mm-hmm. What psychological effect does that have on him?
0: That's right. He thought of Francisco, mm-hmm. which yep. seemed premature, but okay.
1: Yeah, but I just the fact that the very same words. Were yes. Being used, that is you a know, in
0: res- clever par- parallel, yeah, yeah,
1: in response to you know an absolutely devastating infliction of human stupidity on him, mm-hmm. you know, by the state, and yet his reaction is, you know, in some ways different. Yeah. yeah, The other, the other thing I I like about that bit is you know the very end of the chapter. He's doing that for Dagny and doesn't even know it.
2: Oh yes! Oh, good point. Yeah.
1: He just he calls her up out of the blue, you know, after he figures out the the new uh, trust and is just, you know, completely you know dismisses the significance like of utilization opportunity law. This. It's like yeah, you know, he's like, let me tell you about this thing I came up with. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a good point.
1: Yeah.
3: Um,
0: oh, uh, you did remind me of the that uh, one moment with Stadler where he was like, uh, yeah, when once I formed, uh, got the Science Institute to happen, formed it, one of my three treasured students uh, condemned me and I've never seen him since.
1: Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just love that. It's like Ritten just calls her up, you know, in the middle of the night. It's like, you know, yeah. You'll never believe what I
0: just thought of. Yeah. You'll
1: never believe what I just thought of. See, it's a Which, matter of combining a truss with an arch. It's like, what? I can't hear you. Have you caught a cold? What are you thanking me for? Wait until I explain it. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, didn't he, like, uh, chop the price by another factor of, like, two or three on top of the, the half he had already done?
2: I think he said it'll cost you a tenth. It'll cost you a tenth of what the other and it will last 300 years or something like that. Yeah. yeah. I think
1: cost you less than your cheapest culvert. Yeah. That was, uh,
0: yeah. That, yeah. What do you say? There's oh, no fantastic. actual number
1: on it. But it's just, you know, it's almost a hilarious level of like lack of self-awareness.
0: <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. If nothing else,
1: and then what? I guess, you know. You could say, you know, how did he, how did he deal, you know, with this, you know, devastating loss, you know, in sort of the external world. I think he's trying you to know. ignore it. Well, he he retreated back into his own world again.
3: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: he went, you know, he went back to business.
3: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, or, or 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 technology.
0: He didn't say, "Get me those." freaking bastards on the phone. I need to try to fix this. He, he didn't freak out that nobody had notified him. He didn't note it. Um, yeah, it was very yeah. passive.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, he goes back to business in sort of the numb, you know, kind of denial sort of way. But I'm thinking about, you know, um, you know when he comes up with his insight into the trust.
0: Oh, yeah. He's definitely retreating you know, he, into his comfort zone. Yeah.
1: He's retreated back into the uh you know his happy place, yeah, you know, genius you know billionaire sexually repressed non philanthropist <laughs> yeah um, yeah mhm
0: uh mixed chapter, very long, a lot of material,
1: oh yeah, Good. so are we going to do the title analysis
2: oh yeah. We should. The oppressors and the oppressed? No, uh, this is exploiters, exploiters, exploiters and, exploited. and exploited. exploited. OK. And the question, of course, is, uh, well, uh, the, the obvious thing here is that it's a double inversion. It, it, it Neither term means what the run of the mill definition is supposed to indicate.
1: Yeah, it's like, who's exploiting who here and yeah. how? Who whom? Mm-hmm.
3: And
0: yeah. And uh of course we get the inversion, which adds extra extra delight.
1: As per usual, yes. Yeah. I mean she Rand loves, you know, these moral inversions of the conventional perspective. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs>
2: Yes, and for the most part, it does tend to just fly over people's heads. (laughs) Uh, Especially first reading, but yeah. Well, and, Uh, and if you think about it, if you look at it to even today, you get the same terminology going on. I think one of the reasons that Rand's analysis, I mean, not analysis per se, but what she wrote rings true today is because the left really hasn't changed that much, except they've become more so. And so her know, criticisms then become more clear, more clear today, because of that uh, doubling down.
0: What do, do you guys remember that I, I must have told you, maybe even multiple times the story of way back when, when I was just entering the workforce, long time ago, uh i was at a place in champaign urbana and the tech writer was and this was a new species of person for me hey as best i can tell a full-blown communist yep and and chatting with him one time I, i he was like he was like talking about oh you know we'd you know we'd have a whole paradigm shift and there'd be a kind of a revolution and uh you know the people who think like you would uh uh need need to be eliminated i'm like wait uh just for clarification, you're saying like, uh, in this revolution or whatever, you would just kill me. You would kill me. Well, if I needed to, and I'm like, okay, this conversation's over. Um, so that guy, yeah, he, 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 of course gave the, the, oh, you know, we're, we're being exploited by our employer here because we haven't had the paradigm shift yet where I kill you. Um, he didn't say it quite that way. Uh, I, it, if I'd been ready to have more fun with him like Kyle might have, I, I would have been like, oh, yeah, you, I, I see. Yeah. Ex- exploitation. You're right. I see you exploiting these capitalists right now here. You wouldn't be able to do this at all if you weren't using them. Yeah.
1: yeah. Been- well, I think his argument or response would probably be, you know, if it weren't for, you know, them, you know, I wouldn't have to.
0: Oh, oh yeah, that's that's pre paradigm shift. Yeah, I, I have to do this. I, you know, I have to work within the system until we overthrow it and kill you guys or something. Ugh, disgusting.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it's like our response to the parasites. You know, we we're not going to do violent revolution. We have to work within the system until we, you know, overthrow it and you starve to death. <laughs> yeah,
0: there's a difference between me killing you and me just leaving you alone. <laughs> uh they may not see it that way
2: well and i think uh, somebody made the very i don't remember who it was but all successful systems attract parasites i think we're talking about biology but i think it's true on a broader sense that i mean this kind of goes back to jane jacobs uh, systems of survival where she says there's two There's two main systems of survival. There's plunder and there's trade. And in her opinion, the plunder side is what morphed into the state. And the trade side, of course, is what we would recognize today as the the free market. And she kind of sounds like an anarcho-capitalist type, but okay. Well, I don't think she was an anarcho-capitalist. I think what she was pointing out was that If if you look at the warrior mindset, there's a lot of uh, congruity with various state-run enterprises. And by enterprises, she was just meaning activities, not commercial activities necessarily. In fact, she was of the opinion that if you had an enterprise that had mixed the two types of survival systems, it created what she called a monstrous hybrid. Um, She put totalitarian governments and organized crime in the same bucket in, in that sense. And that mindsets and ethical standards that work in the one are absolutely disastrous in the other
1: yeah it it still feels to me a little bit like there's a a bit of a false dichotomy there or at least uh you know something that hasn't quite penetrated to the root um it's like a a subtle misconceptualization of you know the way rand i think would have put you know the more fundamental point is that there are only two ways for men to interact with one another by reason or by force
0: yeah Trade and plunder, yes.
1: And when men choose to interact with one another by reason and persuasion, you get production and trade. When men choose to interact with one another by force, you get totalitarianism. Looting, um, you yeah. Know, you know, looting and robbery. Um, and, you know, then you, you wind up with this, you know, The question then becomes, well, how do we build a society in which men can interact with one another by reason? What's necessary to allow that to happen? What can prevent that from happening? And that's the line of thought that gets you to the necessity of having a government.
2: Well, no, and and, uh, of course, this book was written in the form of a Platonist dialogue which, you know, for the first couple of chapters makes it very hard to read. Uh, once, once you understand what's going on, then it, then it, then it is. It was based on actual discussions that took place uh, between a group of uh, friends, uh, a, a very size uh, group. But some of the points she made were very cogent. So, for instance, this is an example of why she said you can't mix the incentives because you will end up with a... Well, she put it a monstrous hybrid. Do you really want to pay policemen on the basis of productivity?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Because.
0: How do you, how yeah. do you even define Wait, productivity? I, yeah, I, I shouldn't be rewarding you on how many tickets you collect. That, that's not, that's not the good
1: metric. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, my, you know, attempt at doing a stand-in Randian response to that would be that what you're doing here fundamentally is you're mixing up force and reason inside of, you know, sort of the same uh, you know institution. You're attempting to take someone whose job is wielding force and reward them as though they are engaging in persuasion and trade <laughs>
0: yeah, no, an I, I, yeah,
2: yeah that's a good explication i think or or i should say a deeper dive into the point that she was making um i i and i wouldn't expect her to go to that level but she one of the reasons i find the found the book very interesting was that in 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 great degree, she was kind of refuting the uh, anarcho uh, capitalist. She was she was more or less saying you can't take. I mean, she wasn't because that wasn't the point of the exercise. But she's essentially saying you cannot take market-driven incentives and put them in a government-sanctioned uh, uh, organization because they're. Their goals are diametrically opposed. And we've yeah. seen any number of cases where, well, look at civil asset forfeiture. If that isn't an example of a monstrous hybrid where you have taken uh, the notion of productivity to its extreme in a in a totally antithetical environment. Yeah. I mean...
1: Or, I mean, well, think about... Um, you know, the politicians who have the attitude, we paid all this money in order to have a powerful military, why don't we use it?
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Please let's consider it insurance. <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, it's like, you know, yeah. The ideal for that is, you know, you want to have a powerful military and never use it.
3: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: so like insurance. I'm
0: not I'm not planning on my house being burned down. Well, let's well, not make it happen. I just, I'm, I'm mitigating against the possibility. That's all.
1: Yeah, yeah. Powerful military is a little bit like, you know, you know, fire insurance for your home that reduces the likelihood of fire when you pay more for it.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is, it's kind of magical. I like it. <laughs> well, it, it, maybe it's closer to the sort of insurance uh, that has to do with like a, a security right. system. I spend more and more on my security system, the likelihood they're even going to bother goes way down. Yeah, there's armed yeah. guards standing around.
1: Yeah, well, I there's don't a... Want a
0: firefight on my lawn, though.
1: Yeah, well, there's a quip to the effect that the most expensive thing in the world is the second best military. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, was that Heinlein that uh, employed that? or No, his was the most expensive thing in the world was a second rate intelligence service. Mm. And you never know how good your intelligence service is until it fails, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah
2: yikes
3: mm mm-hmm.
1: but, but yes i mean there, there are all sorts of problems with not correctly understanding the boundary between government and market and more more generally between force and uh, reason, yeah.
0: Well,
2: I, I Super think it was basic back distinction in 2000. that nobody
0: recognizes. You
2: know? in, in 2013, the government stole, and we're not talking taxes, we're talking civil asset forfeiture. The government stole more property in that year than all of the freelance thieves put together. So well, yeah. that kind of, now, If you want to be a
0: proper thug, you want to get into government.
2: Yeah, well, essentially, yes, that's what it comes down to. And that's one of the things that I, now he didn't explicitly endorse it, but his reply, uh, Trump's reply to that uh, Texas law enforcement officer who has all been out of shape because they were trying to modify the civil asset forfeiture rules in Texas so that they couldn't be so easily abused. Now I'm of the opinion, civil asset forfeiture is a dead, should be a dead letter. In other words, It should not be invoked under any circumstances whatsoever. If you think you have something that is the result of a crime and you have victims involved in that crime, then you go through, you make it a conviction, and then at that point, if you want to confiscate the proceeds of that crime for uh, restitution to the victims, that I have no problem with. But, you know, this... In a, a guilty until proven innocent approach, which is what civil asset forfeiture is. And the problem was with Trump, and he's not intellectual in this regard. Well, I'm pro-law enforcement. This law enforcement guy has a has a complaint. I'm going to support the law enforcement. You know, back to the blue. <laughs> you know, which is mm-hmm. kind of like follow the
1: signs.
3: <laughs>
1: it's... um. Was I thinking? Um, I mean, I would arguably have less. I'm thinking out loud here, but I might have less of an issue with the concept of civil asset forfeiture if it was held to the same evidentiary standards. Yeah, Um,
0: we need due process. Right now, it's just somebody doing it, and it's
1: like, yeah. Well, but the because. The fundamental line of reasoning is the government takes the property because it is associated to you know to a crime.
2: Yeah, but now, but, but lo- see, the, the... No, but
1: let, let, let me finish. Okay. You know, but logically, you can't that that cannot be a conclusive argument, you know, as long as the crime is still hypothetical. Which means that Objectively, for the government to wield, you know, force in seizing the property that was, you know, acquired pursuant to a crime, you first have to objectively demonstrate that there was a crime, which I think, you know, brings me effectively around to your position.
2: Yeah, I, the fact is, is the, the civil asset forfeiture laws, as they're presently uh, written, all they have to do is assert a crime. And because only humans have a right to a presumption of innocence and not property, we can say this property is guilty. And therefore, until its innocence Mm -hmm. is proven, we can treat it as if it's guilty. That's the, that's the.
1: Well, and I mean, that's a complete, you know, (sighs) for one thing, that's a massive category error in mm -hmm. applying the concept of guilt to anything that doesn't possess consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's just a conceptual hash on that level. Um,
2: but, uh, yeah, so, so yeah, I, I mean, here's the funny thing. And, and I, I've, I've remarked on this time and again, and, and this comes as no surprise to this audience. But I was old enough to remember when Richard Nixon, now we've had civil asset forfeiture for probably three quarters of the republic's existence which is highly ironic given the fact that one of the reasons they rebelled against Great Britain was because of the equivalent of civil asset forfeiture where the crown essentially said, I'm attaining that property, it's now the crown's good luck trying to get it back. It's one of the things that they didn't like. And yet, I, I think it was in the 1840s, I don't recall all of the circumstances when they started doing that crap here. But in the early 1970s, Richard Nixon said, They were going to use civil asset forfeiture, but only against drug kingpins so that they couldn't afford the type of lawyers that allowed them to get off on a technicality. Well, civil asset forfeiture is used in over 100 different, quote, criminal, end quote, situations. And guess guess who they target? Well, they target the people that don't have the means of fighting them in the first place. So Bullshit I mean, about, oh, we'll only use it against drug kingpins. I hear an argument like that, and my immediate response is, yeah, for now.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's establishing the principle. Yep. Um, I mean, there's also, again, you know, epistemological incoherence there, because what Nixon is essentially saying is, we, the government, you know, know this person is guilty of a crime, viz being a drug kingpin. Yes. You know, but we don't want to be required to actually prove that in a court of law. Right. You know, we simply want to be able to take our own, you know, trust us, we know this. Yeah. And have that be given the legal credibility of an objective demonstration under color of law.
2: Yeah. And, and look at how that attitude has spread.
1: Yeah. yeah. That you know well, that is again uh, is sort of the no due the, process, the fundamental no adversary. It's like you, know, you yeah. know, okay, Nixon, this guy's a drug kingpin. It's like prove it. You've got prosecutors.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you're convicted, we'll take your stuff. Have that's nice exactly
1: day. that's exactly what he doesn't want to do. Yeah. And you know, I might argue, you know, it's like, well, you know, if he's getting off because of a technicality, it's like you know. Let's unpack the term technicality. Yeah. Technicality sounds like because you
0: lost. That's, yeah. Not, yeah. that's what I hear.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's like you know technicality meaning it, that like a rule you, you, know, don't like. you, okay, yeah, that, that that you violated rules the rules of evidence and procedure that are put in place to prevent the government from you know wielding force inappropriately. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like. Those kinds of technicalities because, you know, I'm not really comfortable with you basically saying we should be able to convict someone that we, quote, know, you know, is guilty, you know, without having to worry about respecting the rules of process and procedure that keep us, you know, operating, you know, on the principle of using only retaliatory force, you know, to punish, you know, crime. And if you're talking about technicalities like, you know, the laws that define this alleged behavior as a crime are vague and non-objective, you know, maybe that's a problem the legislature should be trying to fix.
3: Yeah, yeah,
0: no, we, we've been noticing more and more that uh, uh, over the years, it's, it's, it's grown to be basically every heroic police officer, cop, department, FBI, whatever, they routinely just do whatever to you know that that guy's bad and we know it and we will bend the rules break the rules do whatever it takes to get them
3: uh
1: well uh like we'll 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 get to floyd ferris in the novel and his explanation of uh you know why the government passes all these laws
0: yeah oh well yeah i think we're living that too uh okay so Shall we put a pin in that? And then Yeah, we should
1: probably put update. a pin in that.